Our scripture passage this evening brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll read the second part of verse 1 all the way to verse 22. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed And gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. 
And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Even in an incredible loss, as we see tonight, Lord, would you remind us that you are always at work and that you never stop working all things for our good. Whatever struggles we may have right now in our lives, would you lift our spirits with the reminder that your grace is real and true and sufficient for all that we need. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. This book, of, of course, is the book of Samuel, but interestingly, we'll be taking a break from Samuel for a while. Uh, we have heard the last of Samuel until we get to chapter 7. So here we are in chapter 4. <clears throat> we're going to read chapter 5. We're going to read chapter 6 with nary a mention of the man that this book is actually named after. What's happening right now is actually the change of setting and subject as we move from little Samuel and Hannah and this family situation to the more national level as we look especially at the story of the Ark of the Covenant and those who are uh, supervising the Ark of the Covenant. Now the origins of the Ark of the Covenant go back to Mount Sinai. After God rescued the Israelites, he commanded them to make an Ark of wood covered in gold with the figures of two angels on the top with their wings outstretched and touching in the center. Uh, We know from the book of Hebrews, the Ark of the Covenant contained a few items. It contained the Ten Commandments, it contained uh, the jar of manna, and it contained Aaron's budded staff. And so all of these things, these very significant things for the covenant of God, were placed inside of the Ark. And so the Ark was meant to be the centerpiece of Israel's worship. It was meant to represent the focal point of God's covenant presence with his people. And normally the ark was kept in the tabernacle, in the innermost chamber. And on the Day of Atonement, we call it, the Jews called it Yom Kippur. The blood of atonement was sprinkled on the ark, and an offering was made to bring atonement to the people. But if you find the Ark of the Covenant exciting, it's probably because you've watched the Indiana Jones movies. And maybe you get excited whenever the Ark of the Covenant gets mentioned. Now, I actually hope that. Uh, In spite of the excitement of Indiana Jones, who doesn't love Indiana Jones? Maybe some of you don't. I don't know. Uh, But even if you love Indiana Jones, um, you should temper your excitement about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Because the Ark of the Covenant doesn't do any of the things that happened in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nazis' faces don't melt off when the Ark of the Covenant gets the lid lifted. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazis thought that they, if they had the Ark of the Covenant, that they could win battles, that they could destroy armies. And the interesting thing is that tonight Israel actually thinks those things about the Ark of the Covenant. It's just somebody went to, did not, nobody went to the writer of the movie and said, you realize that the whole point of 1 Samuel is that none of those things are going to happen. And then they probably said, we're making a movie. Be quiet. (laughs) Um, 
But tonight's passage takes us through this series of, of episodes, each one taking us deeper into Israel's loss. Because make no mistake, this is a deeply disturbing episode in the life of Israel. Just one after another after another domino falls in the life of Israel to the point that you get to the end and this woman who has brought new life into the world feels no hope. Like that is a very, very deep place to be. And so this, this passage takes us through a series of episodes. The, the three episodes tonight are The Ark is Taken, episode one. Episode two, The Judgment is Real. And episode three, The Glory is Gone. The Ark is Taken, The Judgment is Real, and The Glory is Gone. This really is not easy reading necessarily. And it, and it, it certainly veers away from being sort of feel-good material, at least at first glance, but the, the good thing for us, the nourishing thing, at least I think for our own souls, is that we do see and we will see that even in God's judgment, he is showing grace to Israel. And we will see how he's doing that precisely this evening. The first episode in our, in our very dramatic reading is, is massive. It's verses 1 to 11 of chapter 4. For the first time in recorded biblical history... The Ark of the Covenant is taken. And this episode shows us how this happens. In the first four verses, Israel experiences a defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Uh, We first met the Philistines back in the book of Judges. That was the first time we saw them. And we just see them just make one little little, uh, moment. They just appear in the episode of Shamgar. Now you may think, Adam, you preached Judges. I don't remember Shamgar. Well, that's true. Poor Shamgar has one verse, and I am just not clever enough to preach a whole sermon on, one, on, one, on this one judge. So we didn't preach on Shamgar. But the remarkable thing about Shamgar is he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is no small feat. And maybe Shamgar deserves a sermon, but it's, it's not tonight. Um, but this is the first time we see the Philistines. This is the first time the Philistines appear in the text. And the reason is because the Philistines are newcomers on the world scene, um, very much like Israel. In the literature of the ancient Near East, if you read them and you read the writings during this time, the, the Philistines are actually people who immigrate into the land and they come by way of the Mediterranean. So we don't know exactly where the Philistines came from, but they came from somewhere north along the coast of the Mediterranean, probably. And then they brought these ships down, and then at some point they enter into what we know as the land of Israel. And they start occupying this land at the same time as Israel. So they're competing together. uh, You might think of the uh, Philistines as an interested third party. They're not the Canaanites that, that they've been commanded to drive out, but they are their enemies because they want the same things. Now, we aren't told what the occasion of the battle is, but we're, we're told that the Israelites and the Philistines draw up to battle. It takes place right on the border of what we would think of as the Philistine territory. We don't know much about the battle. We aren't given a lot of details, except that it took place between Ebenezer and Aphek. Now, remember that name Ebenezer. It becomes important much later on. As we get near the end of the Ark episode, that name is going to come up again. But we know that the losses of this battle are severe. The English translation says 4,000 were killed. Now, there's some trouble with that. We don't exactly know uh, if these were military units or if these were individual soldiers. That's just a problem with the Hebrew language. 
Um, but most English translations translated as 4,000 were killed. So after they lose the battle, the elders of Israel come together. They say, we need a plan. They say, why did this happen? They decide they need the Ark of the Covenant with them. And there are a couple ways to understand this. It depends on how generous you want to be to the, to the elders of Israel. If you're being really generous, if you really interpret their action of bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the front lines, if you want to be generous, you can see this as them bringing the symbol of God's commitment to Israel to the front lines because they're calling on God to keep his covenant promises. And maybe, they, maybe they did it that way. Maybe that's their reasoning. I tend to... I tend not to be persuaded of that. I tend to be more persuaded of the second way of reading this, which is if you're feeling less generous, uh, which I tend to be. Israel is trying to manipulate God. They're treating the Ark of the Covenant like the lamp, and they're treating God like the genie. And they say, well, let's bring the lamp to the front. This is sort of a mystical, superstitious way of thinking about God. And that's, that's actually what I think happens, but it could be either possibility. It could be. It just depends. I, I tend to think if they were doing it for the first reason, God would honor it. <laughs> I tend to think that God has every reason not to honor the second reason. But that's, my, that's my own thinking. But the ark is, it was kept in Shiloh, which is about 20 miles from the battle. So here's the important thing to note. In verse 4, it tells us that when this happens... Two important people whose names we know enter into the picture, and it's Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two wicked, corrupt sons. And these are the corrupt priests that God has already said repeatedly he's going to kill them, and he said he's going to kill them on the same day. So you've already had the foreshadowing. You already, as the reader, know what's about to happen. But, but in a sense, think about this for a moment. Let's follow God's providential hand, his providential finger, finger here for a moment. Israel loses this battle in verse 4, while Hophni and Phinehas are safely in Shiloh. So you have the loss of 4,000 soldiers, and the loss of these 4,000 soldiers is what it takes to bring these two priests who are marked by God to the front lines. Consider the providential working that has to take place to bring them to the front lines. And they do come to the front. They come with the ark. They accompany the ark. They're probably taking care to make sure that, uh, well, I mean, I don't know how concerned they are with the following of the rules, but they certainly want it to look like they care about following the rules. And so as the ark arrives, the people are excited. The text says that all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. These people believe that this is going to work. They think this item is going to do something for them. But instead, it gets the Israels more fired, or the Philistines more fired up. They know about the ark. They know these things about the God of Israel. Isn't this interesting what they say? They say, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, remember, what they're talking about is, a, is 400-year-old history. By this point, Israel has been in the land. The time of the judges was about 400 years. And the Philistines here, even though they're new to the land, they know about what God did to the Egyptians. At this point, the rescue from Egypt probably happened that long ago, which means 
that God's fame has spread, the name of Yahweh has spread throughout the, the ancient Near East because of how he delivered his people from Israel, from Egypt. I mean, the people still know about this. The people are still talking about this. It still has the Philistines shaking in their boots. But they rally themselves. They, they say, look, this is more reason for us to fight. They say, take courage, be men, and fight. He gives the Braveheart speech. And, and it works. And they do fight. And the Philistines do win. And it says Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. But here is the key verse, verse 11. Verse 11 says, and the ark of God was captured and Hophni and Phinehas died. We knew this was coming. God spoke to Samuel through the prophet that we don't ever find out his name. And then God spoke to, uh, to Eli through Samuel in the last chapter. And he said, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning this house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Now, if we try to dig around the text to find other ways why Israel keeps losing these battles, we're going to come up with nothing obvious. You know, the passage doesn't tell us what Israel's other sin might be. The only thing we know that tells us why this battle was lost was because God promised that Eli's sons would be wiped from the earth. And so in verse 11, it finally happens. It says the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Ultimately, if you ask why this happened, why did Israel lose both battles? Why did the ark get taken? The answer is, it was God's will to finally deal with these two men. Now, maybe that seems unfair. Why would God judge all of Israel because of these two men? In verse 3, after the first loss, the elders of Israel say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So, so Israel knows something. They know this. A loss in battle isn't just a loss in battle. It's a theological problem. That's their immediate place that they go to. What is the theological problem? Does God have beef with us? We know this was true before. For example, in Joshua chapter 7, you remember the sin of Achan. The people draw up for battle against Ai and the army fails. And why do they fail? Because Achan was keeping Spoils that he wasn't supposed to keep. And so the, the idea that God has already been implanting in Israel, he's been showing them this for years now, is there is a connectivity within Israel where God forced the people to understand none of you are an island. None of you sits alone. Nobody's sin just stays just his sin. The sin of, of Achan affected everyone around him. It affected the nation. It affected his family. And it affected the neighboring nations as well. It changed the geopolitical context of the Middle East. This one guy keeping a bar of gold under his bed. Well, the same is true for Hophni and Phinehas. They were fornicating. They were committing adultery. They were disregarding and despising God's sacrifices. They were blaspheming. They were besmirching God's holy name. 
And that sort of thing doesn't just stay between them and God. And that is just a fact that's in stark relief tonight as we look at this. Their sin didn't just stay between them and God. And I'm sure they told themselves that it would. I'm sure they told themselves, this is nothing but uh, something between me and God, God and me. Leave me alone. Let me live the way I want to live. And here's the thing that I would just challenge you to think through for yourself. Are there areas of your life where you've said, this is just between me and God? It's not affecting anyone else. This thing, this secret I have is fine. This is for me. It doesn't matter. No one else has to know. I get on with my life. I do my work. I do everything I'm supposed to do. It's fine. Do you say that about anything in your life? Do you justify your own sin by saying it's just a little sin? Or it's just a harmless amount. I don't gossip much, just a little here and there. You know, a prayer request sprinkled here and there in all my conversations, you know. Um, I don't hate others much. I just sometimes wish the other drivers would veer off the road and have a serious accident. Just a little. (laughs) I just wish it every now and then. Do you find yourself making excuses for your sin, blaming others for your sin? Are there other areas where God wants you to mortify and put to death your sin, and you're not doing it, you're instead giving it a shelter over here in this part of your heart where you say, we'll just keep this, a lid on this. Let Achan and Hophni and Phinehas remind you, sin is bigger than you think. That little flame that you have burning right over there that you think is fine just the way it is, Someday that flame is going to get out and is going to burn the whole house down. You need to take it seriously now. Our sin affects those around us in concentric waves and patterns, often in ways we may not even perceive. That's one of the lessons here. In the second episode of tonight's passage, we see that judgment is real. We see this in verses 12 to 18. Now, what do I mean by the judgment is real? Well, The death of Hophni and Phinehas was predicted in chapter 2. It was predicted in chapter 3. But now it actually happens with Eli's sons. They really have been killed. For for years they've known that God's judgment would visit their house. Now what happens exactly? Well, a messenger comes running to Shiloh to tell Eli what has happened. But as he arrives, the text says, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, why is he sitting by his seat by the entrance to the city? Because that's the traditional place where a judge would sit. He would sit in the entrance to the city and he would sort of preside. That's his seat where he presides. But it tells us why he trembles as well. It says he trembled for the ark of God. Now, why is he worried? Does he know something the rest of Israel doesn't? All these other soldiers going out to battle, getting ready to draw up lines. Is there something That Eli knows that they don't? Well, the answer is yes. Twice now, Eli has been told that his two sons would die. And one of those instances, he is told that they will die on the same day. He is somebody who has reason to be nervous. Calvin reminds us, people who oppose God deep down have very troubled consciences and sense their guilt before God. This is the quote from Calvin. We've heard it before. He says... He who is the boldest despiser of God is of all men the most startled at the rustle of a falling leaf. Um, You have to think 
that in the time since that he has been expecting this, that he's been wondering when would it be, when would the other shoe drop, and how would God do it? And so the news comes to him. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. The text tells us that when he mentioned the ark of God, this is interesting, not his sons. It's not the death of his sons that gets him. It's the ark. It says, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over and broke his neck because of his incredible weight and his old age, he died. So, so he fell, he's, he's frail, he's heavy. Think about this. God tells Eli what he's going to do to his sons right after Samuel comes to the temple. He does this through an unnamed prophet in chapter 2. Then later, we don't know how much later, God speaks to Samuel and tells him the same thing, which he communicates to Eli. Now, why did God tell him twice? Isn't it his mercy? It sort of reminds me of someone who gets run over by a very slowly moving train. (laughs) You can see this thing coming. (laughs) Why don't you move? Uh, This train is not going fast. You can move. Right now, you can move. Go ahead, step off the tracks. You don't, okay, you're not, okay, you're not going to leave. All right. Okay. Um, He's seen this train coming. Why doesn't he move? Why doesn't he do something? And you never see Eli act on these things. And after Samuel told Eli what was going to happen, the text tells us Samuel grew. The text tells us the Lord was with him. The text tells us everyone in Israel came to know that Samuel was a prophet. Think of how much time has passed for these things to happen, for this reputation to build. These things don't happen in an instant. They take years. So through Samuel, it said the word of God came to all Israel. So think about this. The judgment of God doesn't come in a flash of a moment. It's not like with, with Nadab and Abihu where they, 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 they used the wrong fire, they used strange fire, and they were consumed in a moment. It's not like that at all. Instead, the judgment of God rolls over Eli and his sons slowly over a number of years and with incredible and gracious and constant warning. It's almost like God doesn't want to do this. He delayed in bringing judgment And yet it seems, at least to the casual observer, that neither Eli nor his sons appreciated his delay for what it was. God was showing mercy. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans 2.4? Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Isn't that what God's doing here? This delay of God's judgment isn't a sign that it won't happen, but it's a sign that you have more time. Have you ever known people who have actually said, I'm putting off repenting. I'm waiting till I'm older. Uh, uh, this was a while back, but, and, I, and I'm just, this memory just came to me, but I'm remembering uh, walking around the campus of Heinz Community College witnessing to college students, and there was one student who said, who said, I believe in God, I know the gospel, I went to church when I was younger, but I'm going to have fun sinning and repent later. I'm, I'm remembering now that my friend Jeremy and I talked to this kid, and we both tried to tell him, but you don't know what's going to happen. You could die tomorrow, you could die next week, you could die next month, you may not make it to old age. Why would you play that game with God? We could have taken another angle. We could have told him, your life will be better now if you follow the Lord. 
But instead, we just went with the warning path. The delay of God's judgment isn't a sign it won't happen. It's a sign that you have more time. Um, There are definitely young people who think, well, I can go off, I can sow my wild oats, then settle down. And once I settle down, then I'm going to repent and tell God I'm sorry. Do you know people who are putting off repenting and following the Lord? Are you? There are people in this world who put off God. They tell themselves that judgment won't happen because, look, we're all still here. They look around themselves. They say, look, people have been talking about judgment for centuries. And yet we're still here. We're still breathing. We're still sinning. God's not doing anything about it. Peter warns us of this mentality. He says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? They mock the idea that God's going to judge because he hasn't done it yet. And Peter's answer is, God's not not judging us. He's being patient. He isn't delaying. He's giving his people more time. There are consequences to our ideas. Theology matters. So a belief that time heals all wounds, this idea that time wipes away our record, or if I just wait a long time and it feels like my sin is way in the rearview mirror, as if that's going to wipe your record clean, it doesn't work. You don't know when you're going to die. Eli didn't know he was going to die. He fell over and broke his neck. Waiting until right before you die to repent. Those are all bad theological beliefs that have real world, real life implications. Time is not our friend. Today is the day to repent. Paul reminds us, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The judgment is real. And there is still a judgment coming for both the living and the dead. How does Revelation 20.12 put it? He says, they will be judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And so the second thing we see this evening is that judgment is real, no matter if it is delayed. And God was kind to Eli and he was kind to his sons. He gave them a great deal of time, but that did not equal repentance. Third tonight, the narrative enters its final episode, which I call the glory is gone. Either Hophni or Phinehas has a wife. We don't learn her name, but she is pregnant and she goes into labor. And someone brings her the news while she is in labor that her husband is dead. Now, look, uh, I'm not a professional counselor. <laughs> I am not a, uh, an expert exactly on uh, medical issues and when someone should hear really, really terrible life-shaking news But I might suggest in the middle of childbirth is not the time uh, for you to tell someone something like this. But she's in labor. The people tell her her husband is dead. Her brother-in-law is dead. Her father is dead. The ark is taken. And you can imagine in this vulnerable, emotional moment, this, this news would feel like the world was falling in around you. She has no choice but to continue on with giving birth. The English translation says she bowed and gave birth. The Hebrew word here is the word for crouched. So this is certainly saying she's literally squatting to have the baby, which was the common birthing position for women in those days. But this word has other meanings. Uh, It can actually mean to bring disaster on someone. 
this word crouched. In, in, Ju- in Judges 11.35, Jephthah sees his daughter come out of the house and he says to her, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. So when he says, you have brought me very low, he's actually using the word for crouch. You have made me crouch, is what he says. <laughs> so I think there's, there's a double meaning in this, in this woman's, in this moment here. Yes, she literally crouches to have her child, but she is also brought very low at the same moment. There's almost a play on words happening here. Sort of like Jephthah was brought very low by finding out that his daughter is going to have to live a life of servitude and virginity. This is terrible news. She's never been lower than this. So the women try to comfort her. They say, don't be afraid. They tell her, you've you've given birth. You've given birth to a, a boy. She's already become distant. In fact, she is in the process of dying. So as she dies, she names her son Ichabod, which is, as far as we know, the last act that she ever commits to name her son Ichabod. His name means no weight. It means no glory. As you look at this passage, this idea of weight is really significant, this idea of glory. Remember the word kavod, the the word we translate as glory, it just means weight. So she's saying his name means no kavod, no weight, no glory. And this idea of weight and glory really dominates the end of our narrative here this evening. Because remember, when we, the word glory just literally means the word for weight. God is a weighty being. Think about this theme for a moment. Eli lives a spiritually sloppy life, and he dies under his own weight. The passage mentions his weight as actually the cause of his death. And then you have his daughter-in-law gives birth to a son and names him no glory, no weight. Then she explains why she names her son that. She says, the weighty one has departed from Israel. So the scripture has this very clear theme here that God is the glorious one. God is the weighty one. He demands to be honored. He he deserves to be glorified. He deserves to be delighted in. And if he will not be, there are consequences. Do we give God the weight in our lives that we should? For you, is God the one that weighs heavy upon you? Is God the one that sits upon you? Is he the one that guides and defines everything about you? Or is he like an accessory to your life? Is he the beginning and end? Is he the Alpha and Omega for you? Or is he just sort of uh, an appendix, a footnote? I know this passage is hard. It's, it's filled with hard judgments. It's filled with painful providences, exquisite sufferings by those who in some cases barely even know the guilty ones who have put Israel in this position. But from beginning to end, this isn't the sort of passage we instinctively read when we need a pick-me-up. And yet might I suggest that those instincts are not entirely correct. We, we actually do see the grace of God here. In these repeated judgments. Notice this. Israel sins. And yes they lose in battle. But in the book of Deuteronomy. One of the promises that God promises. He says I'm going to. If you break my curse. While, the, while you're in exile. You're going to be dragged off to exile. He actually says. He actually says while you're in the land. If you break the covenant. I'm going to drag you off to exile. 
Now, this much is true about our passage tonight. Someone does receive the covenant curse. Someone does get sent into exile in our passage. But I want you to look closely and notice who it is that gets taken into exile. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's God himself. God himself is the one who goes into exile. The people don't get taken into exile. Instead, he does. Who gets taken into enemy territory? It's Yahweh. Israel, because of the covenant, should have been taken away. They should have been sent into enemy territory. They should have been sent behind enemy lines. They should have been tortured and blasphemed and mocked, but they weren't. Instead, God himself showed his grace and said, I will go instead. Even in such a heavy passage, doesn't God give us a glimpse here of the gospel? Think of what Jesus did for us. We should have been condemned. We should have been exiled. We should have been sent outside of the camp. And he was instead. We should have been sent outside the city. We should have been executed. And instead, he was sent out the side of the city. Instead, he was taken to the place of the skull. And he was executed. At the cross, a judgment happened. But it was our judgment put upon him. Christian... Even in his judgment, there are words of peace for us. Even in the judgment poured out, the message tonight is, Israel deserved the judgment to be poured on them, and it wasn't. Instead, the judgment was poured out on God himself. God took the judgment that they deserved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you sent your Son into the world. You didn't send him to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Give us your son. Make us to trust him. Give us faith where we may feel weariness. Set our eyes on the one who took our own exile and punishment upon himself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.